I'm really excited to introduce and bring up um, my friend Andrew Arthur. We, Stephanie and I, when we came and were uh, approved and assessed to plant the Mountain Church, uh, did a church planting apprenticeship with Andrew in in Fremont at the Hallows. Um, and Andrew's a friend of mine who played a key part in my understanding and, and ability to uh, communicate the gospel. And I, I pray and hope and I know that you will be encouraged uh, from the message this morning. So if you have your Bible open to Acts 14. Acts is the book right after John. And Andrew's going to be preaching uh, verses 21 through 23. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace and your victory that we can sing of and rejoice in and praise. Father, I thank you for your grace and your blessing that you have shown uh, the Mountain Church in raising up leaders and elders. And Father, I pray that this would continue to increase, uh, that, that more disciples would be made, that elders would be appointed, that churches would be planted uh, for your glory and for the joy of those around us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, good morning, Mountain Church. It is a, it is a joy and an honor to be uh, serving with you on this significant Sunday in the life of your, your church. It's been incredible joy uh, for me to just stand back and just watch God's grace at work and Daniel and Stephanie and and the way that he has gifted them and wired them, the way that he's strengthening them and empowering them to serve with, with perseverance and with pleasure and with all the things that go into planting and leading out an expression of God's kingdom here in Des Moines. And so, Daniel, um, excited for you, excited for Stephanie, excited for your whole church. And, and I count it a privilege and a joy to be able to talk to you for a moment um, on such a significant, significant Sunday. As you guys are appoint, appointing and affirming elders in the life of a local church is no small task. And God entrusts leaders to local churches to serve for his glory and for the good of others. And such leaders must be held to a high standard, a high standard of character as it relates to how they image forth Jesus. A high standard of commitment as it relates to how they persevere in their leadership and they press on through thick and thin and love and in service of those that God entrusts to their care. But then also, uh, I would add to that, not just character and not just commitment, but also courage. It takes courage to lead. Specifically, it it takes courage for elders and pastors and leaders to consider other people more significant than themselves so that they would lead in light of that reality. Many of you no doubt are familiar with Stephen Colbert. You know kind of who he is in our culture. Well, he was given the opportunity to speak at Northwestern University, which was his alma mater. And he gave a commencement speech where he talked about uh, some of the rules for improvisation. As you know, that's kind of his background in comedy and those types of things. And so in this speech, he would lay out some of these rules. And I want to share them with you this morning to get you thinking. He says... He says, now there are very few rules about improvisation, but one of the things I was taught early on is that you are not the most important person in the scene. 
Instead, everybody else is. And if they are the most important people in the scene, you will naturally pay attention to them and serve them. But the good news is you're in the scene too. So hopefully to them, you're the most important person and they will serve you. No one is leading. You're all following the follower. You're serving the servant. He would say you cannot win at improv and life is improvisation. And what he's getting after there is that the rules of improv, he's not getting moving in this direction, but I will take it in this direction. The rules of improvisation in many ways reflect the, the rules that should apply to leadership in the life of a church. And when you consider what he is saying, that, that we as followers of Jesus, we take our cues on leadership, not from our capitalistic economy based on competition. That's not where we draw our inspiration and take our cues on leadership. Instead, we take our cues on leadership from, and this is a mouthful, but I'll get you to think about it. We take our cues on leadership from what's called the the Trinitarian economy of holy deference. The Trinitary economy of holy deference. And here's what that means. You know that as Christians, we worship one God. One God who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as you consider who God is, you know that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each divine person, they joyfully defer to the other. They joyfully defer glory and power to the other. And when you consider what it means to lead out in the local church and what it means to lead out in the kingdom of God, you know that, or we should consider how deferring influence, deferring influence is a hallmark of Christian leadership. This means that leaders should desire more influence for others than they do for themselves. We should desire more glory, more joy for others than we do for ourselves. I think this is what Paul is getting after in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 where he says that God himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. He gave these leaders to the church to do what? To equip the saints to do the work of the ministry, to defer influence, to defer glory, to defer joy to those that they are leading. That one of the burdens of Christian leadership is to help others thrive in their service to King Jesus. That's, that's our, one of our chief concerns. And it is one of the many reasons why God gives leaders to local churches. And you kind of see this happening here in Acts chapter 4 in a very subtle, kind of muted way, but it's there nonetheless in Acts chapter 14. Because here you have a moment where Paul and Barnabas are wrapping up their first missionary journey as God had called them to take the gospel to predominantly Gentile contexts, non-Jewish contexts. And they began to do that, and, and they travel began traveling southeast from Jerusalem, and they would preach the gospel in many places, places like Antioch and Iconium. Lystra and Derby, and as you kind of read through their journey in the book of Acts, they basically had two, uh, two phases to their strategy. In phase one, these men would enter a town, they would proclaim the gospel and begin to make disciples. And then after that, they would move on to another town, and, and in most cases, they didn't have much of a choice to move on. They were driven out of towns due to persecution and struggle and and when you get to this moment in Acts chapter 14, they reach Derby, this city about southeast of Jerusalem, and they, 
they decided it was time for phase two. And so rather than kind of circling back to Jerusalem where everything started, they just did an about face and they reversed course. And these men revisited all the places where the gospel had taken root. And they revisited all the places where disciples of Jesus were growing and being made. And they would sweep back through these places that they had at one time visited and served and, and listen to what they prioritize. Listen to what they prioritize, beginning in verse 21. You've heard it read. Let's read it again. After they had preached the gospel in that town and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church and prayed with fasting, they committed them to the Lord, that is, those leaders whom they committed them to the Lord whom they had believed. And so you have this moment where Paul and Barnabas are returning to places where they had previously suffered for the sake of the church, places where they struggled and were engaged in the grind of church planting in these contexts. For example, we know that in Lystra, Paul was stoned. And uh, we know that wasn't in the fun Washington way. It was more in the Middle Eastern way. It was, uh, he got stoned by having rocks hurled at his head and They dragged him out of the city and left him for dead. Nevertheless, Paul would return to that place, having the courage to consider others more significant than himself, having the courage to seek glory for others and not just his own self-preservation. See, apparently one of the burdens he felt upon returning when he returned to these cities was to guard these new disciples from going disillusioned in their faith. That this was one of the burdens he felt. He needed to guard them from growing disillusioned in their newfound faith in Jesus as they were coming up against some of the struggles and some of the sufferings that he himself had endured following Jesus. Now, I'm sure you know what it means to grow disillusioned, especially if you've ever been to the Red Lobster. Uh, if If you've ever gone to Red Lobster, specifically during Lobster Fest, you know what it means to, for this to happen. Because about once a year, what happens is they, leading up to this quote-unquote celebration, Red Lobster will roll out this huge marketing campaign with tons of commercials. And each commercial just kind of showcases these luscious lobsters and close-ups of crab legs that just snap beautifully and easily in a person's hands and meat just kind of blossoms out of the shell. And so viewers of these commercials will rush to the restaurant hoping to, to get a hold of some of that luscious, scrumptious crab meat and lobster meat and... Only when a viewer gets there and they sit down, they order some crab legs, for example, and they expect everything to be like what they saw in the commercial, that this is what the experience is going to be. Only when you pick up your first crab leg and you try to snap it, it doesn't snap. It just kind of bends, (laughs) just kind of bends and tears a little bit. And then when you finally tear it open, you don't really find meat just blossoming out of the shell. It's kind of barely takes up half the shell. Like the crab just kind of spent a little bit too much time sunbathing before he got caught, and he's just shriveled up in that, in that stuff. And so what you have in that moment, what you have in that moment is what's called disillusionment. Because disillusionment arises when your expectations are contradicted by your experiences. And one of pastoral leadership's most sacred responsibilities... One of pastoral leadership's most sacred responsibilities is to guard disciples from growing disillusioned in that way. Is to guard disciples from going disillusioned with the gospel when they themselves face hardships and struggles and trials in this world. 
And ultimately, you have Paul and Barnabas doing this in two ways in this story. One, they themselves were willing to do hard things. They were willing to do hard things in the sense that disciples had in Paul and Barnabas examples of leaders who were willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Paul returns to cities that chewed him up and spit him out. Why? He returned to these cities because he considered the needs of the church to be more significant than his own. He led and loved in ways that future leaders would be expected to lead and to love. So you have two guys willing to do hard things, but then a second dynamic is they themselves were willing to teach hard things. Not only did they do hard things, they taught hard things. Listen to what Paul says. He says, to them it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Translation, don't be surprised when you suffer while living the Christian life. Reminding Christians that faith in Jesus does not exempt anyone from hardships, does not exempt us from struggle and suffering. In fact, faith in Jesus may may actually invite hardship into our lives. Paul would say this much in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. In fact, all who live a godly life in Christ Jesus, he says they will be persecuted, they will face resistance, they will face opposition. So what that means is that as Christians, as you engage your relationship with Jesus, you have to understand that Jesus is changing your life in a way He's changing your life in a way that will increasingly, increasingly bring out how incompatible you are with the world in which you live. Jesus increases our incompatibility with the world. And because of that, we will always, always face in various forms hardships, struggles, opposition, resistance, even persecution as we seek to follow Jesus. Now, this is a hard truth to communicate. Not many evangelism strategies kind of include this in the curriculum. Not many church growth strategies lead with this message. But God-honoring leaders, God-honoring leaders who love the church will aid her by shoring up her expectations with biblical realities so that her expectations are not contradicted by her experiences. God-honoring leaders will guard the church from growing disillusioned in their faith by doing hard things and by teaching hard things. And so Paul and Barnabas here are doing just that. And the leaders that will follow in their wake, they will be expected to do the same thing. And Paul and Barnabas know that they will soon move on. This is why they're kind of retracing their steps on this journey because they know that the churches in these cities and in these towns, they need leaders and they need not just any leaders, they need leaders who would lead like them. Leaders who would do hard things and teach hard things. So they're sweeping back through these towns and these places and these cities to appoint elders, to appoint pastoral leaders who will remain in the missional trenches of the church where they will serve. Now, the process of planting a church kind of comes full circle in this story. We, guys like Daniel and myself, we do not plant churches as much as we plant the gospel. We go into a context, we go into an area, and we begin to declare the gospel, and God, and by his grace, begins to rally disciples around the gospel. And as people begin to grow, and as disciples are being made at that point, then servant leaders are needed. Servant pastoral leaders are needed to be appointed among them. And this is where you all find yourselves today. This is why this is such a fun moment in the life of your church. You've been proclaiming the gospel 
and making disciples. And now uh, the time, it's time for you to lay hands on and affirm Daniel Englehart, Nathan Schloud, and William Finn as elders of your church. But before we kind of do that, let me give you real quick four more convictions concerning pastoral leadership in the life of this church. Just four thoughts on this dynamic. These are convictions that are birthed from the scriptures, and these are convictions that the Holy Spirit has really solidified since um, giving me the privilege of serving as a pastor of the church where I serve. And, and the first one is this. Pastoral leadership in a local church is to be a plurality, not a singularity. That it is supposed to be a plurality, not a singularity. If you'll notice in verse 23 that elders is plural. In fact, this is the case most of the time when the role of elders is discussed in the life of the church. Now Daniel has been laboring faithfully and diligently to see this church planted, and it's now time. It's now time, according to God's design, for other godly men to join him in sharing the pastoral leadership of this church. And this is somewhat of a paradigm shift for some of us, specifically those of us who may have been experienced with the church in the 20th century. For much of the 20th century, pastoral leadership in America focused on a singularity, focused on the guy. Churches assumed that, if, that, that one gifted leader could lead them into a glorious future of impact and influence. And part of this obsession was, quite honestly, a reflection of the American culture. I mean, American culture that uh, loved John Wayne, right? And loved the Lone Ranger and loved Rambo and loved John McClane, loved these singular heroes that would lead the charge of some story and some plot to connect with something significant. But as we've stepped into the 21st century, you know that this, there's been a shift on this front, right? Now we're all about the Avengers. <laughs> and the Avengers are a different style of leadership, right? Because now you have a picture of several gifted people coming together, complimenting one another and striving to accomplish a shared mission. You see, the Avengers are far more biblical than John Wayne. Because pastoral leadership is supposed to be a plurality, not a singularity. And the wisdom of this should be readily apparent. It should be readily apparent. No single leader among us possesses all the spiritual gifts and skills needed to lead the church. No single leader among us can do this on his own. Saints need to be equipped for the work of the ministry. The affairs of the church need to be overseen. The body of the Christ needs to be shepherded. And no one person can do this. And a plurality of leadership provides a multiplicity of gifts and competencies needed to do this well. But then you can go one step further and say that no single leader is, no single leader among us is beyond the pale of sin and temptation. So a plurality of leadership is needed to provide the necessary accountability and oversight. This is why when you affirm more elders in the life of the church, you, you're giving guys license to press into each other to ask each other hard questions, to expect much from each other as it, way, as it relates to spiritual maturity and Christ-like character. Pastoral leadership is to be a plurality, not a singularity. But with this, we also want to say that pastoral leadership in a local church is to be a collaborative, not competitive. That the reason we have pluralities is so that we can work together, so that we can lean upon each other, so that we can embody interdependency in ways that would be glorifying to God and good for everyone involved. And so these men that you're going to affirm, they, they're supposed to work together to serve you well. And as they collaborate in their leadership, you're going to find that there are ways in which Daniel is more gifted than Nathan. And there are going to be ways in which William is more gifted than Daniel. And such differences in gifts and strength must be received as a blessing to your church. 
You must not allow those differences to do, for, do to you what happened in the church at Corinth. You know what happened in the church at Corinth where members there were, they started to turn leadership into a competition. And that resulted in a hyper-dysfunctional situation. As the church divided into factions where some said, you know, I'm all about Paul. Others said, I'm all about Apollos. Some said, I'm all about Peter. But then the really spiritually condescending folks, they said, well, I'm all about Jesus. <laughs> it was a really messed up situation. And they all had their reasons for who they gravitated towards. Some appealed to Paul because he was the founder of the church. That in their minds, he carried more authority and weight. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. Those who preferred Apollos did so on the basis of his impressive gifts. He was a gifted communicator, a dynamic preacher. Those who appealed to Peter did so because he was an OG apostle, so to speak. <laughs> he used to walk with Jesus, right, for three years. The head of the church of the first, of the first church in Jerusalem, he was the man. Now, the church in Corinth did not catch this competitive spirit from the leaders themselves, but it was there and it was a problem. And it's a problem that you, as members of this church, must guard against. And the way you are to guard against it is by recognizing that each one of these men, upon their appointment, each one of them are now, is, is now your pastor. And you must see each of them that way. You're to embrace each of them as such, listen to each of them as such, submit to each of them as such. Nathan and William must not be viewed as junior varsity leaders in the life of this church because they have not served in the same exact ways as Daniel up to this point. If you are appointing them in this role today, then you are committing to viewing each one of them as your spiritual overseers, each one of them as your pastors. This means when you are in need of pastoral counsel and you get William rather than Daniel, you don't feel slighted. You don't feel like you're getting attention from your pastor. You are being served by your pastor. Pastoral leadership in the church should be collaborative, not competitive. But then a third dynamic is that pastoral leadership in a local church is a privilege, not a right. One of the things about this passage is that the elders are appointed by others. They do not appoint themselves. No one has the right or is entitled to serve as an elder regardless of their age, regardless of their experience, regardless of their gifts, regardless even of their desire. Elders must be appointed and being appointed is a privilege that must be received with humility and sober-mindedness. You see, self-appointed leaders are insecure leaders. Self-appointed leaders are insecure leaders because they have to resort to manipulation or coercion or even force to maintain their leadership. You see an example of this in the Old Testament book of Judges with a guy by the name of Abimelech. Now his story is worth reading in Judges chapter 9. And what you find is a man who asserts himself into leadership and it ruins him and it ruins everyone that he's supposed to care for. It's a privilege to lead out in the body of Christ. A privilege that should be received and held on to as a gift of God's grace. Now, this gift of God's grace, it's attested to by two things, and both need to be present. One is there's an internal call, a desire within the man who wants to aspire to serve as an elder. That is present, but not just that, because you also have the affirmation, the appointment of others outside of themselves those who are willing to look to them as leaders and to entrust them with the care of their spiritual welfare and lives. 
Pastoral leadership is a privilege, not a right. And as you step into it, do so humbly, do so sober-mindedly. And then lastly, pastoral leadership in a local church is about service, not status. Elders are servant leaders in the life of the church. They are to serve the church by nurturing and shepherding the flock of Christ. They serve the church by teaching the word of Christ. They serve the church by modeling the character of Christ. It's about service, not status. One day Jesus was hanging with his disciples and he overheard them arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And interestingly, when he heard this conversation taking place, he did not turn to them and rebuke them from desiring greatness. Instead, he took the moment to disciple them, to nurture them, and to redefine greatness for them. And what he does in that conversation is that he contrasts leadership in the kingdom of God with leadership that is common in the world. And this is what he said. Mark chapter 10, verse 42, you know that those who are regarded as rulers, that is leaders of the Gentiles, lord it over them. And those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave that is a servant to all. And then Jesus would point to himself and he would remind them of his servant leadership saying, for even the son of man did not come to serve, but to come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you hear what he's saying? That Jesus did not enter the world to be propped up by the people he came to serve. He entered the world to prop up the people he came to save. And when you think about leadership in the life of the church, you have to know that the, you have to know that churches do not exist to prop up leaders. Churches do not exist to provide pastors with wide platforms of influence. Pastors and leaders exist to prop up the church. Pastors and leaders exist to platform the church. Pastors and leaders exist to defer influence by equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry so that you guys can thrive representing Jesus here in Des Moines, making much of the gospel. Because what you're going to find as you press into Jesus and thinking about leadership is that ultimately in the end, no one is really leading. We're all following the follower. We're all serving the servant. This is what it means to lead out in the church of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace as we consider these truths? I pray, Father, that you would help the mountain church to apply these truths and how they view leadership among them. Father, I pray that you would give grace to those that you are appointing and affirming to serve as leaders of this congregation. I pray that your grace would abound in them, that they would work together, that they would collaborate well, that they would serve and prop up the church, that they would live for the welfare of those around them. Father, would you bring great glory to yourself and would you bring great good to the city of Des Moines by, by how well pastoral leadership is engaged here in the Mountain Church. So Father, I pray your blessing upon them and I ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen.